Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Joe Holt to the show. Joe is a professional television, film, and stage actor. Raised in a military family, Joe earned a full ride to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and planned to study business, but decided on being an actor by the end of it. You've seen him all over TV and commercials, including shows like Law & Order, Scandal, Grey's Anatomy, and The Punisher. And you'll see him as Dr. Leo Bennett in the upcoming new launch of The Walking Dead World Beyond. Joe has split his time between New York and Los Angeles, and we met in LA through mutual friends a while ago. He's smart and passionate, and I'm thrilled to have him on the phone so I can hear about his journey and get his thoughts on the present moment. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hello, Nick. I am thrilled to be here. And am I allowed to cuss? Yes, you are allowed to cuss. All right, because that's all I'm going to do for the next hour. <laughs> that's very good. Stream, endless stream of obscenities. <laughs> well, I'd expect nothing less. Uh, but apparently you're going to also give me a lot more. <laughs> I put a nice explicit E up there on every episode, yes. even when there isn't cursing. But in this one, I guess we're going to really earn it. Um, Joe, do you remember where we met? I honestly can't. I figure it must have been through Nick and Evan, right? It had to be. I feel like when we did the show vicariously. Yes. I'm not sure if I knew you yet. Okay, I see, I was wondering that. So for the listeners, there is a very funny web series called Vicariously that our friends Nick Clark and Evan Gaustead made. And Joe played one of the leading recurring characters in that. And I just did a little yeah. bit part at one point. When were we in Vancouver? Was that like nine years ago? Yeah, I mean, it would have been around, yes, I think that's right. 2011 or something, 2010, 20, I was doing Final Destination 5 up there. Yeah. What were you shooting up there? Do you remember? I was working on... Um, Oh, man. Supernatural. I was working on oh, Supernatural. yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. All right, well, tell me about The Walking Dead World Beyond and what do you get to do in it? Tell me what you can tell me, I suppose, because I bet yeah, you there's a lot of, like, secrecy I, stuff. What I can tell you is this show is the first time we've watched a group who have not been out fighting the, the walkers, or as they're called on our show, The Empties. And it basically centers around these two young women, Hope and Iris, who are sisters, and they're trying to navigate this new world for the first time they're entering into the world. They've been sequestered in this university kind of setting. And I play their father, Dr. Leo Bennett. And we see them throughout the season. You know, most of my stuff is in flashback and we don't really know what my fate is. But they set out to find me at the beginning of the show because I might have the answers to, to how we battle this plague, this, <laughs> this pandemic. Mm. Uh, so I came on as a recurring in the first season, and I was in four of the ten episodes. It was a, a really great time. Matt Negretti uh, and Scott Gimple, the showrunner and exec producer, respectively, are great dudes. It was a lot of fun getting to have a character that actually developed, that had an arc. And was supposed to come out April 12th, but it, you know, I don't think that releasing a zombie show in the beginning of this was the best idea. And I think that the smart folks at AMC thought the same. So now we're supposed to come out the last quarter of the year, and we're hoping to start filming sometime in the next two months. So, Man, I'm so happy for you. I mean, congrats on an awesome gig. You deserve it. You've been working really hard, doing great work for a really long time, and I look forward to hearing about that journey. That's something I know you're going to speak to. Thank you. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm thrilled for you, and I look forward to 
hearing about you going back to work as I look forward to any of my friends going back to work yeah. at, at this time. Can't happen soon enough. All right, Joe. Well, before we get into the meat of the show, I got to know, what'd you have for breakfast? Uh, this morning, I had a shake, which is my typical breakfast. It had blueberries, some acai, strawberries, Four banana. link sausages. And, and there was <laughs> Seven eggs. <laughs> Uh, and a hammer. I put a hammer in there <laughs> to see, just to test uh, how powerful the vitamins was and to get some iron. And then I drank a completely cold, day-old half cup of coffee because I wanted to go to the gym. And I always have coffee with my shake before the gym if I go to the gym. Uh, so that was my breakfast. So that you do the thing table. where you save your coffee if you have a little leftover from the day before? I do not do that thing on purpose. It just happens to be there, and I was pressed for time. So I just said, screw it. It's, it's coffee. It's still coffee. And I'm lame. So I'm just going to pour this coffee down my throat, this awful, cold, day-old coffee, because I'm just trying to get the caffeine. How did it do? Did it give you the caffeine? Who knows? I mean, <laughs> I just, it hadn't hooked myself up today to the electrodes to determine the, the variance. But, uh, but I, I made it through the workout, so I'm assuming it was all super positive. Oh my God. That is really funny, Joe. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. And excellent work. All right, Joe, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? You know, my family's from the South. My mom and dad are both from North Carolina and they're both God fearing and Christian. And as are both my older sisters. So as a kid growing up on base, I'm sure the base chapel was my first introduction to it. I don't know that we attended services regularly but I did associate Sunday with church and the main goal of church for me at that time was getting to the part where everybody's saying amen. Cause I knew that when they started singing amen, I got to leave and take off those clothes. Mm. But uh, yeah, my parents, uh, it was never a real focus in the household. Um, although they both are of faith. And I think that being a military kid, there's a kind of constant, disconnection you know there's this constant movement so nothing really seems permanent mm. you're moving from base to base your dad is out of town now he's in town all your friends are moving so there's a transience that i feel like also manifested in my experience with with religion uh, as i got older my uh, older sisters became members of churches and for me, it was something that never really stuck to my spiritual bones. I think that I'm, I tend to be a really critical thinker, and I always want to lay everything out and take it apart. And there have been parts of it, as it's been introduced to me and as I've experienced it, that haven't held up for me. So I've had to sort of find my own voice, my own way through the world. I am a believer in energy, and I am a believer in our finding our truthful connection with ourselves, which I feel is connected with our world. As far as any sort of deification, that's still something that's a question to me. And I don't have a hard line on it either. You know, I don't, if, if it's your belief system, I've grown less interested in attacking it. Uh, and I used to be, but I think everybody is doing what they need to do to get through the day. And everyone finds their specific or particular opiate. And not to reduce it or, or minimalize it by calling it an opiate, but my spirituality has to do with finding my true, 
my true center. And I feel like that center reverberates with our natural selves. Well, listen, your show doesn't get to be over right now, Joe. I told you, I need you for like a good hour or so. That's, that's, I'm not taking closing statements at the beginning. Um, <laughs> I'm just remarkably succinct. It's just a gift. Come for the hour, stay for three minutes. You know, there was something I was thinking of, though, when you asked that. Uh, yeah. There were two experiences I had where I felt as though a larger power had moved through me. Excellent. One of those experiences was my grandfather had passed away. Uh, this must have been about 25, 27 years ago. And uh, we went to North Carolina for the funeral. My family went to North Carolina for the funeral. And the reverend was giving either the benediction or his eulogy, or he was speaking on my grandfather. My father was sitting in the pew in front of me, sort of to my left. My father's a really stoic dude a serious guy, you know, not to be trifled with, thinking guy. And he was a military officer. And, you know, he wasn't, as, as most of the men from that era, they aren't fond of expressing their emotions or, or used to it, at least. And I remember sitting behind him and he was, is always expressionless. And uh, he had great love for his father, our grandfather. And at some point, I was moved to place my left hand on his right shoulder in front of me. I'm not sure why, but I placed my left hand on his shoulder and I felt my entire body shake and I just started weeping uncontrollably. Hmm. Now, there are a number of ways to account for that, and I don't need any one of them to be true, but I think they're all possibilities. Uh, he's my father. And fathers and sons uh, have a connect and family members have a connect. And um, I always remember this. <laughs> remember the movie Conan the Barbarian? I mean, yes-ish. I know what it is. You don't remember it line by line? <laughs> Look, I know I our great governor of California, our great former governor of I California, is not it? Well, there's this great moment in it where it's towards the end and, and, and there was a woman that he had met and they fell in love and she died and they had to burn her in like a funeral pyre. And his little sidekick guy, um, he had a sidekick guy and he had the shaman, like the, the healer dude, the mystic. And the sidekick guy's crying and the mystic is like, why do you cry? And then the sidekick's like, he is Conan. He cannot cry. So I cry for him. And in some way, I felt at that moment like he can't let loose with this. So I have to do it for him. Mm. And then I had something, I won't call it similar, but my sister, my oldest sister, Jocelyn, was joining a church. And at one point they called, you know, the, the people that were the new members down. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to stop you. Yeah. Did you ever speak to your father about that moment? No. Have you ever talked at length with him about the circumstances surrounding that moment? No. And have you ever, like, what is the most emotionally deep conversation you've ever had with him? Oh, we have a lot of emotionally deep conversations. Uh, you know, we had a, a rough go growing up. He was a disciplinarian. And the overall effect of my father was positive in that he was incredibly accountable, responsible, present. But he was a dominating force in the house and a disciplinarian. And so growing up, I was very intimidated by him. 
when I got into my early 20s I and told him that I was going to go to New York to pursue acting, he wasn't happy with that, but he did, didn't try to stop me. And in his defense, as an African-American man growing up in the 40s in the Deep South, <laughs> your son becoming an actor is not viable. Mm-hmm. And actually, statistically, he's 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew what I needed to do. And after about a year in New York, I was in this very uh, intense class where the the guy would go at you personally and challenge you in every conceivable way and find where you lived, so to speak. And and people would leave that class and everyone wasn't built for it. And, you know, I, I still can't say whether that was good or bad. But for me, a kid who'd grown up with that kind of discipline, who played sports, who'd always had high demands on excellence, I was fine with it. You know, you need to be forged in the fire. Mm-hmm. Anyway, about a year into that class, uh, I had a scene and the scene had an emotional requirement that I couldn't meet. We would work on scenes for weeks and months if, if you didn't get it. This class was very process-based, building blocks, learning what you're doing. And one day, I remember leaving the class, you know, my acting coach said, I don't know, maybe you're just too good to be a bad actor, meaning the character had to do some awful shit, and I was such a kind of a boy scout, like, I'm going to do everything perfectly and right. And it broke me, I, you know, I left the class and I got very upset. And then I realized as I was standing on this scaffolding in little Italy, that my dad's eyes were always watching me, hmm. always. I could see them almost. I remember almost seeing them in the sky, like they're always watching me. And how can I do what I need to do creatively if these eyes are always watching me, these critical judging eyes? And I went home that night, I called him, and I knew that I needed to tell him everything that had gone down with us and sort of liberate myself creatively so that I could stand on my own two feet. And for two hours, I just unfolded everything and said, you know, I told him everything that I had a problem with. How old are you at this time? 23. Okay. Maybe maybe 24. Cool. Okay. And I was fully prepared for him to let loose on me. And I was fully prepared for that to be the end of the relationship Um, because I knew that I was coming from my truth and I knew that I was also coming from a good place. I didn't call him and yell at him. I didn't call him and say, you did this. I just called him and said, the first thing I told him actually was, I think you did a good job raising me. And then I said, but here's some things I had a problem with and I have to tell you. Yeah. It's a, I understand. I can relate to that. Not in exactly the same situation, but I know that feeling. I just, I think I want to stress how cool it was that you said you went into this knowing that this could go south, that you were going to hold true to what you felt was the right way to do this, but this could go south and you're willing to accept the repercussions because you're going to feel that you took care of your side of the street, you know, so to speak. Yes. This is powerful. Okay. So what's his response? When I was finished, I probably talked for about two hours. There was silence. Wow. And then he said, well, son, I feel awful. I think in that second, in that moment, both of us became friends. We opened to each other. And from that moment, he's one of my best friends. Wow. And I credit him with, you know, being raised the way he was and having experienced what he experienced, the awful racism that he had to go through. And just, you know, the the stuff that a black male at that time to a lesser degree now, but still present, but a black male born in the South in the forties, the stuff that he had to face and then being a military officer and being uh, on a base where you're surrounded by 
primarily white officers because most officers are white and just having to maintain his sense of dignity and with his own troubles. And my mom is being left out of this part of it for no particular reason. She's, I was raised by two amazing individuals. Um, I still am. But in that moment, his ability to recognize where I was coming from, that I wasn't coming from a place of hate or anger, that I was declaring myself, uh, I give him a lot of credit. And it's true. Since then, all we've discovered is how similar we are. Hmm. So yeah, that happened when I was 24. And I can honestly say that, you know, we've had any dust-ups we've had since then have been completely minor and completely temporary because uh, I love him and he loves me. I think growing up, it was hard to find space for that. You know, and as boys become teenagers and as boys become men, there's almost an unavoidable conflict as you seek to grow and primally, you know, from a primal place, replace the man, Mm -hmm. replace the father. So, you know, all that stuff is happening on an animal level and we're just trying to navigate it with our limited vocabularies and our limited emotional vocabularies. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of myself for having the conversation, but I'm I'm more impressed by his ability to hear it. Well, that is a that's a beautiful story. I, I'm so happy to hear that you took the real emotional risk and also the the real empowering and wise step to evolve for yourself. And it was met with like open arms in that way is very, very cool. That's how we move forward. That's really, that's really cool. That's how I move forward. And for me, the real, you know, I mean, I can talk about the artistic woo-woo, but the truth of it was I didn't want to be this guy who's in his forties and fifties holding on to all this shit about my parents. Yeah. You know, people are still being affected and they're still under the sort of emotional sway uh, of their parents in ways that are negative, in my opinion. And I didn't want to be that guy that was still like, my dad did this, you know, the the reverberations are always going to be there. But I wanted to take accountability. You know, I wanted to be responsible for what I did and accountable for what I did. And uh, I had a similar conversation with my mom a year later with very different circumstance. And that just led to both of us crying a bunch. All right. Well, if you want to talk about that, I would love to hear it. What is the inciting event that creates this memory with your mom? Uh, My parents, as I mentioned earlier, were getting a divorce. Uh, We lived in Montgomery, Alabama, which (laughs) was a nightmare of a place to be in the mid-80s for a black person. Probably, I have no idea if it still is. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't want to defame it, but it was a nightmare. It was Mm. just super racist. Uh, So my, my folks were splitting I had decided to go live with my dad because uh, he was leaving Alabama, which was priority number one. And one of my sisters was staying down in Alabama, as I recall. And it was a difficult decision because there's my mom and there's my dad. Long story short, I decided to live with my dad. And, you know, divorces can be very messy and it's a very emotional event for everyone. How old are you when you have to make this decision? 16. I was wow, 16. Jeez. Or maybe, maybe, yeah, 15 to 16. Uh, the school years year. for that. Tough years. Yeah, it was not, look, that was a, a four-year crucible of puberty, racism. We had moved after living in New Jersey for 10 years. So at 12 years old, 
you know, sort of leaving everything, you know, and wow. going down to a place that's a polar opposite in terms of the, the ethos and the culture. It was very unlike the Northeast and trying to navigate our way as kids that have been raised in this sort of Northeastern military setting was, was brutal. And, you know, I decided to go live with him. And one night my mom got upset uh, because she thought that I was you know, telling things to my dad. And there was all kinds of stuff going on that I totally understand now and even understood then, to be honest with you. And she decided I was leaving the next day. Hmm. So I hadn't prepared. My friends didn't know. It was like 11 at night and I was going to be getting on a, a bus at five in the morning. And, you know, at that age, at that time, in the mid 80s, is 15, 16 year old, you're not calling people after 10 o'clock at night on that phone in the house. Right. There were no cell phones. There was no texting. There was no Internet. There was just you had one way to access people. I had one friend, a guy named Sean, who, as both of our lives, it felt like they were exploding. We had become very close. We played soccer together. And, and I called him like 11 at night. I knew that Sean would pick up the phone immediately. And I told him, hey, man, I got to go tomorrow. And. It's all an awkward conversation because you don't know how to express your feelings and you feel stupid every time. You feel bad about everything when you're that age. Any, any change feels embarrassing and like I did something wrong. Mm. And, uh, you know, so we, we had our goodbyes. My mom took me the next morning and Sean and his brother showed up at the bus station, which was amazing. Oh, wow. Years later, I found him on Facebook and said, thank you. And as I got on the bus, my mom had made me a lunch and, and I had this uh, – the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy anthology, I believe. And, and I looked out the window, and as I was pulling away, I started crying. And even at the time, I could tell that I wasn't crying for me. I looked at her, and I could tell, I could tell she didn't know what she was doing. I could tell this was going to hurt her more than it's hurting me. Mm. And I just felt for her. It was traumatic thing for me and that's what I had to call her about later on and say this happened and I forgive you and I just and I needed her to know that and and um and it just led to you know cry best with mom and Joe because I love her to the ends of the earth and she loves me to the ends of the earth so you know it was the objective was accountability on my end the objective was never punishment for them because if there's one thing you have to learn as an actor, it's to see why people do what they do. And with both my mom and my dad, I could see where they were motivated by pain and love and where they were motivated by a desire to do what's best for their kids always. And, you know, that's filtered through uh, the things they had to work out. And I'm fortunate to have parents that can hear, do hear and do love me. And uh, so that's a really powerful foundation to have. And I'm fortunate to have it. Well, those are some great stories to open up with, man. And uh, this is a point where we're going to take our first break. Cool. So we'll be back in uh, just a couple of minutes. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. 
Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. Okay, everybody, we're back with Joe. It was a lovely first segment, but one thing that I need to get back to is the second story that you mentioned regarding your kind of most spiritually poignant moments. Yeah, you know, look, if you haven't been to a black church in the South, you're really missing out. The energy, the a good preacher elevates the room, and it's a really dynamic, amazing place to be. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's a Baptist church. And, you know, he was calling down the new members to the church, and my sister Jocelyn was going down to the altar, and I decided to go down there with her. And we both knelt. And if I recall correctly, we held hands and holding hands with her. I just sat there trembling. I felt the spirit. Hmm. And the best way that I can describe it, looking at those two instances, is probably love, overwhelming love, which I have for my family and which is why it's also that's what it could be in that period of vulnerability. Like I said, I don't have a need to categorize it. I can only account for the feeling of fullness in those two moments and two very different kinds of fullness, you know, but perhaps the, the power was the same and the flavor was different. Um, Each of my family members has a special place and a special relationship with me, all four mean different things. And Jocelyn was without a doubt the protector growing up and uh, the one who had to sort of blaze the trail and take the knocks for her younger brother and sister. But yeah, that was uh, a powerful feeling. And if nothing else, those were indicators that there is something greater I don't know that any of the forms that I've seen it articulated in satisfy me or convinced me of any specific truth. Where in your life or have you in your life experienced symmetrical moments or like moments to those types of peak spiritual moments of maybe you could say transcendence or like you said, extreme love. Do you get that in your work? Do you get that in your acting? Uh, do you get that among friends? Do you, where do you, where do you seek or find that? The places that I found the deepest connection have been friendships that I've had for years and sports. Hmm. Playing sports. I, I played pretty much everything growing up, but, kind of finished on soccer in my 20s. And I don't know how to explain to someone who has not had the experience 
of the power of being on a team, a great team. And by great, great is defined, yes, by your success on the pitch, but it's also defined by the connection that the group of guys or group of people has. And I think that the joy of success, I'll never forget, I played on a team in New York after I'd moved to New York and I got connected with this team called the New York Athletic Club. And uh, they had a very good soccer team. And I went to one of the practices and kind of proved myself and got put on the team as a defender. At the end of my, I think it was my, the end of my first year being on the team, we ended up in a, in a championship game. And in the first 20 minutes of the game, I went up for a head ball. I, I hit my head against another guy's head and split open a cut over my eye. Hmm. So I couldn't play. And we were right across from some school that was out of season. We went across to the school bathroom and this guy's looking at my eye like, let me take you to the emergency room. Let me take you to the emergency room. And I'm like, I think we can close this thing up. So I go back to the team. There's a kid there who was a trainer at Columbia University. He butterflies my eye. One of my teammates named Kevin rips his shirt and wraps it around my head like the red badge of courage. And I go back and play the second half. About 20 minutes into the second half, I score what would turn out to be the game-winning goal, and I felt this elation that I've never felt. Wow. And it's because of the connection with those guys. And afterwards, you know, we're all in the bar, we're drinking up and everything, but that feeling of... And look, maybe because also there was a journey there, right? I had to overcome the fear, blah, 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 blah. But more importantly, the guys that I bled with and won with and lost with, there's some kind of connecting camaraderie. You know, when I watch these shows that kind of like, they like showing the bloopers, they like showing the mistakes. And I always think, do you know what it's like to give? <laughs> do you know what it's like to to love something like that? And to put yourself out there and risk failure with giving it everything you have. And I think that as an actor, that's the element that I want to find, which is you find that in plays sometimes, right? Like the most, the most exhilarating part of a play is the family, mm -hmm. right? Like I don't remember any performances. I remember what happens afterwards. I remember rehearsals. I remember uh, blow ups and, and I remember laughter. Like the family is the fun. I guess you can find that on a TV show, but it's harder because A, you're all working different days and different scenes and different storylines. Most people aren't the regulars. But with a play, you have to live with these people for six weeks to a year. You know, you're in the dressing room with them and you're both dealing with an awful audience and you're both dealing with a great audience and you're all dealing with the reviews and you're all dealing with the rehearsals. And I think that having grown up as a kid that played sports in a military environment, which is also one of it's a team, a team environment uh, with high stakes. I love high stakes teams. Hmm. And I think that's the joy of this work for me. One of the most fulfilling parts of, of the show that I worked on last year, walking dead world beyond was finally having a part that allowed me to get to know people. You know, you don't feel like you're just a guy coming in with your hat in your hand working for five days and then leaving. You start to develop family. Mm -hmm. And I think family is deeply spiritual. And maybe that's because I come from one that I feel deeply spiritual with. But I, for sure, 
have been buttressed throughout my existence. I went to school at Chapel Hill, and there are about 15 to 20 people that I went to college with 30 years ago that I'm still close to, incredibly close to. I feel very fortunate to have that kind of support around me and that kind of love around me. Mm. I'm not sure what your question was, but... <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's great, <laughs> that's what man. I know what the question was, was where do you find it? You know, right. where do you yeah. find it? You, you, that's where you find it. I get that. I, I uh, don't know how many listeners can relate to it, but I got chills when you were talking about that, scoring that goal. I, um, you and I definitely connect as we do with some of our friends that um, we play sports and I love playing sports. Yes. I, I was not as successful as you uh, at your levels when I was younger, but I always played. I always played hard and played to win and played to love on my teams. And so I know that feeling of- I remember you on the Frisbee pitch. I think I had to cover you at some point. It was my first time playing. I think I had to cover you. Well, I did play hard on the Frisbee pitch. <laughs> you're, well, you're a good athlete. And and uh, I, I did not like, I, I feel like I had to cover you. And like, I'm fast and he's fast and great. I'm going to be embarrassed by this guy who's the super nice guy. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure it was a great match. And I, after you telling that glorious story, I'm deeply honored to, to take your, <laughs> to take your compliments. Yeah. I think I just wanted to say that I really get that. And I think that's a really powerful thing that I haven't heard anyone say on my show yet. Um, talking about sports and talking about high stakes teams is your quote. And I really think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think on an intuitive level, I understand that about plays. I, I totally agree with you. Everything you say about TV and, and the theater world lines up to me. Um, but sports is a really powerful thing. And, and I think that one of the reasons that it's not mentioned, one of the reasons I don't tend to mention it right away is because half of the people that play sports lose. See, but here's the, but, but yeah, I, go ahead. Go, go, go. This is the problem with our point of view and our current assessment of sports. We say one thing and then we live another. And I don't know if this is specific to the world, but it's definitely specific to this country where we say it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. We say that, but in no way do we honor that. Mm -hmm. the, the team that loses the finals gets branded as losers. They made it to the finals. Right. More importantly, we've lost our appreciation of what it takes to measure oneself against another or what it takes even to measure oneself against one's own limitations. The glory is in the effort. The glory is in trying to go catch the fly ball, but now we have to ridicule the guy that, that falls against the wall. And all I see is he ran as hard as he could to catch that. Do you know how hard it is to do that? And we've become far too comfortable. And it happens in our business too, with the need to take everything apart. And I don't know when and why this became okay, the application of, of car wreck mentality to everything, but it's ruinous in the world of sports because nobody likes losing. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not, not justifying losing. It's valuable to lose. It's incredibly, the giving every kid a trophy is a horrendous idea because you have to learn where your aptitudes are. You have to learn what it feels like to not win. You have to learn, that's data that we're removing. So you can say, yes, there's always going to be a person that doesn't win. But look, man, I don't know many people more competitive than I am. And 
if I played a, a game against a really great team or even against a great player, after that game, I'm shaking that guy's hand because sure. I respect you. I respect that you came to battle. And I hate being bested. I hate it. But there's a warrior code. And the warrior code is I can't be better unless I face better. For sure. As, a, as an actor, you don't want to be the, the most talented person in the play. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to test myself. I want to know that my level is being tested. And I tend to seek out those circumstances where my level will be tested. So, I mean, I, and I think this is what is lost if you haven't. And look, everybody doesn't have the joy of competition. I'm a super competitive guy. I was blessed with a, a certain degree of athleticism and a combination of blah, blah, blah. And, and many guys are blessed with more. Um, and I, I loved competing. And I had to learn to lose well. And I did because I learned to appreciate the effort, appreciate the try, appreciate that we just went out there with no gain, with no, there's no trophy that matters when you're over 25 years old and you're not professional. It's all just the joy of the battle. And then afterwards you shake hands and you get a beer. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just feel like there's a mentality of cool that has poisoned us. And I think it misses the point. Uh, you've seen the natural. Yeah. Oh yeah. The moment that I always remember from the natural is when Robert Duvall is sitting with Robert Redford and, you know, Duvall's the writer, Max Mercy, I think his name is in the movie. And he's interviewing Roy Hobbs and he's just talking about, you know, whether you win or lose, it's going to make me a great story. And Hobbs looks at him and says, you ever play ball, Max? And you just see this, there's this one guy who has no appreciation for the love of team and sacrifice. He just wants a story. And this other guy is like, it costs. It costs us to go out there. And we become too comfortable looking at these paragons of excellence because they make a lot of money, which they're earning. We become too comfortable wanting to take them apart. And I don't think it's healthy. Hmm. Anyway. I like that. I like it. I like it a lot. I don't know where to go right now, so I'm going to just take a second <laughs> to pause. I really, really like it because I haven't talked about it on this show yet, and I haven't thought about sports in a really long time, certainly in that way, and I haven't been playing much since I yeah, became a has. father, and, and yeah. since we got older. Exactly. Both things all kind of happening at the same moment. But um, And after a certain age, I mean, I'm 50 now, so you know, I've had four knee surgeries and a back surgery. It's It's harder to get out there and yeah. Did you watch the Jordan, the, the Bulls documentary, The Last Dance on ESPN? You know what I did is I followed it on ESPN with like little clips. But anyway, go on. It was the most important thing in the sports world during its run. The thing that I left with was, and the thing that the reason he is a, a captivating figure is because he really does have an insatiable pathological need to win. But there's a beauty to it because he is a noble warrior in the way he competes. He is accountable. He's honest about himself. Flawed. And you just see that his mindset was perfect 
within the lines. Outside of the lines, it leads to a personal struggle because there's nowhere that will fits off the court. But on the court, I've never seen anybody with more of it. Like I said, Joe, I think that's a really, it's hitting me really powerfully how you speak about sports. And it's also resonating a lot with me because I am someone who has loved sports for so long and I haven't engaged in this kind of conversation about it in a long time. So thank you for having such elevated thoughts about it. And this is a perfect moment to take our second break. We'll be back with Joe for the final segment in just a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Joe in our final segment. Joe, I want to go back to, there was a lot of power in that moment when you were describing being 12 years old. You had lived in New Jersey, you think, did you say for 10 years? Yeah. So unlike what I was expecting to hear, being someone that was in the military, which I typically understand that to be oftentimes you're moving every three or four years. Right. You actually got to spend a great chunk of your very formative early years in New Jersey. Yes. In a place that you were indicating was more accepting or is at least at least was an environment you understood. Yes. And then at the age of 12, your father is transferred to Montgomery, Alabama. My dad got accepted into the Air War College, which is a prestigious military school, military posting. So if you get accepted into the Air War College, you go to the Air War College. <laughs> what is it training a person for, just out of curiosity? He was a navigator in the Air Force. He was already a high-ranking officer. He's already flown in Vietnam. He's a decorated dude. He was a navigator for C-130s and C-141s. And it's just one of those higher levels of distinction. There's an Army War College. There's an Air War College, Navy. Every branch has a war college. Hmm. You know, So I, I guess it's sort of like where the elite go to, to further their expertise. For us, it took us out of what was – you know, this was hardest on my oldest sister, Jocelyn. She had to leave before going into 12th grade. And this, the entire family has agreed, was just an awful – if we had to do it over again, I think we would all have Jocelyn go to – to have her senior year in New Jersey. But it was, you know, as a military kid, that's part of the deal. We had an, an unusually long stay in New Jersey, which is good and bad. And, you know, my sister Debbie, who's in the middle, Debbie's kind of the one that has the memory of everything. I, I always think of Debbie as sort of the best of all of us. Like, she has the best parts of all of us kind of combined. And I think that the place, it was very difficult for Jocelyn, who was very, a real force of nature in New Jersey, to go to this place where suddenly she has no footing. I think Debbie adapted as well as could be expected. But the thing that was missing in Alabama that was present in New Jersey, the races just were more comfortable being around each other in New Jersey. And maybe that was because we were on an Air Force base and, you know, military kids are used to moving around and kind of, hey, you're a new kid. Let's go play kickball. Mm -hmm. um, 
Alabama has such a segregated culture. In fact, at my junior high school and my sister's high school, their high school was named Jefferson Davis after the president of the Confederacy. They had a separate homecoming court for blacks and whites. You're kidding me. I am not. In the 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My jaw is dropped. That is... Yeah, and and so this is infuriating. This is just part of the sort of the psychological weight, the additional psychological weight you carry being African American that other kids don't ever have to even think of, and especially going from New Jersey where that wasn't part of the deal. In fact, all of us had dated outside of our race at some point. Um, My sister's friends were name it. You know, I grew up with kids who were Jewish and, and Latina and, 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 and German-Irish kids, and it just didn't matter. It just didn't make a mark in New Jersey. You know, the kid was either fun to play with or he wasn't. My parents, having been the victims of racism their whole life, never put any of that stuff out there. They never had a problem with the friends we brought home. They never – and that had to take some wrangling on their part. You know, they weren't raised – around the kids I was raised around. It had to be unsettling for them to see us bring home people of other races, but you never heard it from my parents, which is a tribute to them. Anyway, going down to Montgomery, it was difficult for me. I was always quick, smart, good at school. I had a terrible habit of correcting teachers (laughs) in elementary school. Um, Especially the spelling. And I remember the first week of science class in seventh grade, his teacher was talking about the larynx and the pharynx. And she oh, spelled wow. them on the board. How funny. And my hand shoots up. And I said, do you mean larynx and pharynx? <laughs> and she looked at me. And I remember, like, the room just got tense. And I'm always thinking, look, man, right is right. And I know that I have to be right with shit. I have to bring home A's. I, so right is right. And this is right. Therefore, I am I'm justified by the rightness of it. And I'll never forget looking over this, this light-skinned black kid named Walter, who was from Alabama. And I said, isn't it larynx and pharynx? And I kind of was looking around like, who's with me? <laughs> this kid, like, eyes forward, not moving. And the woman, the teacher says, larynx and pharynx. I said, no, larynx. And fairing. Wow. And I remember, because, you know, I was, my dad was, you speak out. You don't let anybody tell you not to speak out. It did not endear me to her. And I thought it should endear me to you because I'm correcting you. But I wasn't aware of things at 13. Uh, So (laughs) Alabama was a real. Okay, now hold on. I want to, there's something else there I want to get into. Something that you just said about my dad told me to speak out. Okay, so I've spoken to a couple of different black friends of mine on this show about this, and they all have a story. And I see this a lot in social media right now. I hear this in, in interviews where you are, you teach your kids when they are in an environment where there are police officers. I guess, suppose maybe it's specifically police officers, and I guess maybe you would have a different answer or possibly have a different answer here. But to be told to speak out is something that no one should see that as if you have a right answer and you have a conviction about something, to speak out about it is a is a quality we should all possess. Yes. But you, was that always kind of an incendiary thing matched with 
your race? My dad was outspoken. My dad on the base would confront injustice. He saw it. I'll never forget. We lived on a street. I must have been about six. And this kid was riding down the street and he, he was like yelling or saying the word nigger. Ugh. And <laughs> my older sister, Jocelyn, grabbed this kid by his hair and pulled him off his bike and gave him a beat. Wow. And later that evening, I think it was at least, and look, this might all be a little fuzzy and I might have, but this is the gist of it. There was a meeting on the block where the parents came together and had a discussion about how this is not to be tolerated. Him, not her. And that was the beautiful thing about growing up on McGuire in the 70s. It was sort of the first time that I think people were getting involved in recognizing the wrongs, mm. um, or at least addressing. Um, he's a super intelligent guy. He's well-educated in the ways in which African-Americans have been subjugated and discriminated against. And he brings a great level of integrity. Uh, my mom is well-educated and well-spoken and has tremendous presence. The people in my family tend to have that. And that goes back to <laughs> my grandpa and gra on both sides. There, I come from a family that has operated with integrity and dignity and not force, but strength. Um, so I was raised with that mindset, you know, that nobody's better than you and that don't ever let anybody tell you who you are. And that led to some confrontations. But the worst part about that is as a kid, no one should have to deal with that. Mm. Uh, and kids don't think that way. Kids just go to the sandbox. Two five-year-old kids on the beach that meet each other are best friends for six hours and they'll never see each other again. They don't care what the other kid looks like. Mm -hmm. That's all taught. So yeah, my dad encouraged us to speak our mind and educated us so that we could. And I'll, I'll never feel like I'm educated enough, but the house was filled with books on our history. He looked, he was the first kid in North Carolina to try to integrate the school system. He was the kid at 12 years old. He was the case. What do you mean? Like your dad was the kid that tried to go to a white school because it was closer? Yes. He has a case in North Carolina? It went to the Superior Court of North Carolina. And then wow. it got... My, my older sister did a documentary on it as her thesis. And in fact, now there's a group of middle school kids uh, at a school called Explorus that are trying to get a school named after his mother. So he, he has quite a history in North Carolina of activism, and he's an integral part of the civil rights of North Carolina. And so that's the house we were raised in. That's powerful. And as a kid in, in Alabama, there's so many things to try to navigate when you're 12 already. Being in a new place, fine. We're used to this. We'll meet people and make friends. But being at a high school, I was at a junior high that was a new junior high school. By ninth grade, I was voted class president. I was voted most likely to succeed. I was the captain of our soccer team. I asked a white girl to the prom and her parents wouldn't let her go with me because I'm black. Fuck me, The man. same thing happened when I moved to North Carolina. A girl's parents would not let her go with me because I was black. And then I got wise in 12th grade and asked a black girl. But having to deal with that stuff, all that stuff of trying to figure out what's the secret code to just have watching John Hughes movies and you're not, I wasn't in John Hughes movies. 
So I see myself as a character on the screen and think, oh, yeah, I'm like that guy. But then the world tells you something different. So if you want to talk about where your spirituality comes from, trying to identify the rules of your existence and line them up with your internal sense of truth is very complicated. Believing in a God that is benevolent uh, is very complicated when I just see injustice all around and I've been victimized by the injustice while at the same time I've been blessed with certain things. But at 13 years old, you're not thinking that. You're not seeing that. And it shapes you. It warps an African-American person's entrance into the world because there's this element that you can't account for, which is why sports in school are so appealing. Sports is linear. In the worlds that I was traveling in, I did everything right, but didn't get the girl. So I'm trying to line up, well, what's the, what am I doing wrong? And then that's why it's imperative for people to educate themselves because at some point you realize, oh, this isn't me. This is it. And as a kid that never wanted to make excuses and didn't want to be handed anything, it's very difficult to come to that conclusion that it's not you. Because mm. I don't want to make any excuses for my, for my failure. I want to own it. But there is an element out there that's greater than my merit that is deciding things. And Alabama was my first real introduction to the power of it because that was prevalent in Alabama. It, it appeared in New Jersey. It appears everywhere. But it was prevalent in Alabama, and it was specific. It was polarized, black and white. And that was a lot to manage as a kid. Oh, man, Joe, that's really, really impactful. Thanks for sharing that. And I felt even worse for my sisters is black women in this world. You know, they're both intelligent and attractive and engaging. They were popular and they were cheerleaders. And then to go down to North Carolina, there was no place for them to fit in. You know, the kids that we hung out with in New Jersey didn't exist in Alabama. The sort of mischievous scamp in New Jersey was a redneck in Alabama. There wasn't any mixing with that. And the racial epithets were free flowing. So it was a it was a complicated place. Fuck man. I mean, I guess I'm it's it's so um ugh, it's enlightening. And it's an expression of my ignorance and naivete, but I am trying to imagine the anger <laughs> that you must yeah. be feeling on a daily basis. And again, this is yeah. obvious. I mean, I'm not an idiot. I know that this expression has been in the African-American population for centuries now. Sure. But, boy, until you willfully, as a white guy like myself, willfully put yourself in these positions and try to imagine on a daily basis, what that would be like, and then try to imagine the will to, and the restraint to not lash out every day. Yeah, because you also, as a black person, don't have the benefit of the doubt. You know, if you're, if you're a white male, you've been taught, let's just talk about television and movies. Who are the heroes of the 50s and 60s and 70s? Of course, they're white males, but what kind of white males? John Wayne, Clint Eastwood. I watched Chinatown recently again. And 
who's the protagonist? He breaks the law when it serves him. He is not empathetic to anybody's concerns. Hmm. At some point, he slaps Faye Dunaway, who's been raped by her dad. He doggedly pursues whatever he wants without regard for anybody else. And that was the paradigm we were shown for years. That guy, that John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, that Chuck Norris, these guys. So what do we expect? And why did we value this? Why is that given value? Unfeeling, cold, brutal, rule-breaking. I can't be those things. As a black male, you don't have the benefit of the doubt to be a badass. I can't break the rules like those guys can because my image has been vilified and criminalized for hundreds of years so that I walk in the door as a criminal in the subconscious. That is the hardest part to deal with because then even if you try to toe the line, you're trying to live up to an imaginary standard that is not lived up to by these other guys. So to get a hold of all that is a lot. And yet, rage is a daily part of it. And then I had to learn, well, where is this useful? Because just being proud of your rage doesn't serve. But recognizing that your rage isn't imagined and that your rage wasn't just – because, you know, if, if white men are angry, it's called passion. Hmm. If black men are angry, they're angry black or black people, angry black woman, angry black man. And if women are angry, they're neurotic. So all this stuff is sort of the genetic coding of this country. And without an awareness of it or without a willingness to accept that, we're going to have incredible division and incredible unrest. And for me, navigating that in the South was hellish because mm. I was succeeding. I was doing the pull yourself up by your bootstraps nonsense, and I still wasn't getting the results. I was getting all the results that I could earn that were linear. And, you know, again, for my sisters, for black women, it's worse. They're the most marginalized. They don't get to see their visage on magazine covers. When I grew up, I'll bet if you named the four shows you loved the most growing up, they would have a guy somewhat like you who's running the show or who's funny or who's the lead. The guys that looked like me on TV were a guy that owned a junkyard, a short, loud guy who yelled, George Jefferson, mm -hmm. a family in the hood, good times. Those were the people that I saw. That's where I was on TV. Yeah, not until Will Smith, right? Well, Will Smith wasn't until I was in my teens. Yeah. And even then, he's just a happy-go-lucky clowny guy. Will Smith's incredibly talented. That's not to knock Will Smith. Yeah. But the positions that we were put in, emasculated, silly, ghetto, not powerful. Hmm. It's so part of our mindset that we think the hero looks a certain way, which is ironic because a hero is somebody that has to overcome adversity. Yet our hero is the person that's had the very least adversity in our society. So I wanted to be a hero growing up. 
I watched Robert De Niro in The Deer Hunter. I wanted to be Robert De Niro. I'm like, I Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Robert Duvall. I watched these guys and thought, I'll be like them one day. They're serious guys doing serious shit. I never even considered being an actor. I just thought those guys draw me. When I did decide to be an actor, I'm going to go to New York because that's where those guys were. And I thought, yeah, I'll be cast like their cast because I'm like them. I'm masculine. I'm intelligent. I'm intense. But the parts didn't exist for me. In 40 years, we've had one strong black leading man. His name's Denzel Washington. There hasn't been another one. Hmm. Joe, did you have a moment where this just kind of broke for you in your life? Like maybe the, the weight of this type of injustice around you made you break and then you somehow found the strength to put yourself together as a stronger individual after that? I mean, do you have a moment like that in your life? I, I feel like there's been a chain reaction of things uh, that I haven't really thought about this question, obviously, but it all begins with the foundation, in my opinion, right? I was raised with parents who were conscientious and smart and attempted to fill me with a great sense of integrity. As I got older, and I've always had a curiosity about human nature, which is probably the reason I do what I do. I've always been interested in why people do what they do. And I think I've always had a decent sense of understanding that. And I've, I've been intuitive about that. Once I started turning that gaze on myself in my late 20s, after just started feeling like I felt my anger at all times. Mm. And I felt it's one thing to feel it, but I was directing it at friends. And I kind of started, you know, I, I'd, I'd come out of a bad breakup. I was at the Borders bookstore in the self-help section where you go to find out how to live. And there was some book on self-esteem. I read like five pages of it. And I'm like, oh my God, I have a self-esteem problem. Hmm. And I did the book, like a workbook. I just started doing the exercises of that book. And it was the first time I started being able to zoom out of myself and see, oh, here's what you're doing when you do this. You're bullying people. You're not seeking conversation. You're seeking victories. Well, why is that? And as I started pulling out of that, I started realizing for the first time that I'm lovable. I don't have to win. I don't have to, that just my existence is enough if I can accept myself. That began the journey. And from that time, I've started asking myself, well, what is it that brings you pain? And is there a way to, to relieve that pain and that stress and that anxiety? About a year and a half ago, I was in New York. I had moved back to New York because I wasn't satisfied with my TV opportunities in LA. I got to New York. I started getting tons of TV, but I was making less money. I started teaching at NYU. I loved teaching, but money got so bad that I had to go bartend again, which I hadn't done in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that was awful to have to go behind the bar as a sense, you know, I mean, it was either bartender take loans or get money from somebody and that's not going to happen. So I'm like, all right, you have to swallow your pride and get behind the bar again. Unfortunately, I could find a job. A guy that I knew from back in the day was kind enough to let me work at his place, Ainsworth. And, and you know what? It kept me afloat for a few months, but it was hard because here I was 20 years after doing all the right things, classes, challenging myself, and I was working. I was still working, 
but you can't make money on five guest stars a year. Yeah. You can't. And five yeah. guest stars a year is a great year for most actors. Oh, it's, so it's, when, people don't understand how hard it is to get five guest stars in a year. And and the bottom fell out on, on the uh, living wage thing as an actor. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's hard. They see you on TV and think you're making millions. And it's like, let me tell you what I actually made. Yeah. So that led me to this really dark place. I got out of the bar. I got a couple of commercials and I got at this and I got at that. So the fall of 2018, I was in a play and I had to stop doing the play because I got a guest star, which paid more money. You can't do a play in New York for what they pay if you have a guest star. I had a couple of small gigs that I had to compromise on all of them. And by October, I was miserable. And that misery lasted till December when I was just disconsolate, depressed, in the hole. I was going to fly out to L.A. I was flying out to L.A. It was like December 27th. I was coming out to L.A. for six weeks to see if I could find some commercial work before pilot season started. I'm on the plane, and I'm watching the Bruce Springsteen special. He had done this Netflix special on Broadway. And at some point, Bruce says, you know, I knew I was an artist because I hated school. If you're an artist, you hate school, something like that. Mm. And I was sitting there with my earphones in and I took them out and I thought, I liked school. And for the next two hours, I laid everything out for myself. I laid out what I was doing, why I was doing it, what I loved, what I didn't love about this business, what brought me joy. It was one of the first times I asked myself, and it's shameful to say this, that I was 48, what? brings me joy. And I realized that my joy, aside from friends, my joy came teaching. I loved teaching. There's something about imparting wisdom or there's something about collaboration. There's something about being the center of that attention that I don't get from being on stage because I don't care about 500 people I don't know. I do care about these 13 people that are engaged. I love problem solving. I love creating. I love helping. And then I thought, well, what about acting? And I realized, well, acting is like this hot booty call. I'm acting's booty call. Mm -hmm. So acting is like doing whatever it does. I'm trying to get acting to marry me. Acting blows up my phone three or four times a year. Like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, oh, shit, acting's in town. Hey, acting. And then acting and I go out and acting and I get drunk and acting and I go have sex in a hotel. And the next morning, I'm sure that acting's going to love me and acting is gone. <laughs> I've done everything to make acting love me. Right. And I just can't. Acting has allowed me in the room on occasion on acting's terms, but acting's never loved me back. And then I thought, wow, I got to New York and within two months, I was invited to teach at NYU. And I started thinking, what is the universe telling me as opposed to what am I trying to wrangle from it? So I decided I need to go to grad school because I get to do intense work for two years that I love. I love working on Shakespeare. I love working on, the, I love table work. I love the work. Mm -hmm. I'll do work for two years. I'll grow as an actor. I'll get out with an MFA and I'll go teach for good in a university, making a living wage without wondering what my money is. And I need to start pursuing my joy. There was one school I looked at, USD. This is all still on the plane. Their application deadline was January 4th. So I had a week. I started working on monologues. So when I went down to audition, I remember the day, I remember telling myself, 
instead of worrying about winning and dominating, can you find joy in this entire day? I'm relaxed. I'm prepared. How much can I impart today? Can I find somebody who's more nervous than me and make them relax? What can I give today without worrying about my own yard? I've taken care of my yard. Can I trust? How much trust and love can I find? I went into the audition. All I wanted to do was play. My only objective that day was, can you really play? Can you actually go in that room and fucking play and not worry about the results? And I played. I had a great time. I ended up getting into the school, long story short, the next four or five months. I moved from New York, came out to L.A. for the summer to try to make some money before I went to spend it at grad school. In August, I had just signed a lease in San Diego, and I got the job on Walking Dead. <laughs> but the point of all that, at no point in that journey did anything happen that wasn't supposed to happen. And I feel like it happened because I was pursuing my joy. I didn't mention this. When I landed in L.A., I immediately started seeing a therapist. I wanted to go in open. And I really feel like when I walked into that room, I mean, nothing was different for me in that audition. My manager was like, did you feel anything different? I'm like, no, I thought I've been doing great jobs for a long time. But the truth is I had accepted. And then getting that job, that's how I went into that season was Man, gratitude, true gratitude, not fucking uh, cleanses and meditation, gratitude. Can you be on set and recognize how amazing you had it? How many people want to be on set every day? How many of our friends are dying for a day of that? How hard is it to get this job? And I was conscious of that on set every day. I think for me, it was actually recognizing how many things have worked out for me. Healthy. I have a great family and a great friend group. And I've been able to make a living in something that is incredibly hard to make a living at. It doesn't mean your life is ideal, but if you don't recognize that, you're never going to find happiness. Yeah, man. I feel like a lot of the things you're talking about are so, so universal and so hard earned and we all got to earn it ourselves. Um, it's so universal and you hear it all the time, but your story really speaks to just how hard it is for each of us to really earn that wisdom, man. It's hard. And yeah, there's a lot of noise. Yeah. There was a lot of beautiful stuff in this conversation, man. And I I just really appreciate you coming in and, and sharing so openly about it. I love it. It's great to talk about this stuff, you know, and it's nice for me to think about it too, to sort of see the journey. Yeah, well, it was a real joy, man. And you gave me a lot of stuff to sit and reflect on. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Hang on the phone with me for a second. We'll say goodbye afterwards. Yep. But right now I'll say goodbye to the show. So thank you all for listening. All right. Well, listen, before we get into the meat of this show, I got to figure out if you had meat. No, I'm not going to do that.
because yeah, yeah that's not good enough. Before we get into the meat of this show, I got to know. <laughs> all right. This is clearly already, I've already got an outtake, Joe. Jeez. Um, okay. Here we go. I, I looked up your age, actually. Joe. I don't know if this is going to make it on the air, but I looked up your age on, I looked up IMDb and then your age is there. And I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. I thought I could have swore you were like just two years older than me. Yeah, I can't believe how good you look at 50. Okay. Congratulations. I want to call you every week now. Regardless of what it is, of <laughs> yeah. Well, just yeah. go back and listen to this episode. That, that'll be, that'll, you'll always have it. 